Celtic's earliest, closest and most important connection with any other club is undoubtedly that with Belfast Celtic. The boys toured Belfast in 1889 and drew crowds of over 8,000 to victories against Distillery and United Belfast. It was Celtic's first tour and first season, so the crowds for that era were staggering. The Belfast Celts were formed in 1891 and were established in the image of Celtic Football Club in Glasgow. The moulding of the new club and its design, extending to include its association with charity, attractive football and an indiscriminate signing policy. The club chairman, James Keenan, suggested the name Celtic, and secretary Bob Hayes wrote to the Glasgow namesake for their blessing in using the title. Not only did they receive as much, but a sizeable financial donation was also offered in response. By 1901, the club had become a limited liability company and had to register as Belfast Celtic Limited because Celtic Football Club Limited already existed. Their football was played on Donegal Road in West Belfast at a multi-purpose facility named Celtic Park or Paradise to the Belfast Celtic fans. The stadium actually became the first in Ireland to host greyhound racing in April 1927 and continued to be used as a greyhound track right up until the 1980s. Belfast Celtic enjoyed very early success, winning the Irish League title in 1899-1900. The club's ascendancy and wider symbolism generated big support and they soon became a beacon for the nationalist community. The Celts had phenomenal ability to draw fans from across the 32 counties, so much so that special train services were provided for supporters from Dundalk and smaller towns in County Louth on match day. However, most matchgoers came from Ulster. Many people throughout Ireland would follow Belfast Celtic but also look out for the results of their larger namesake in Glasgow. This was reciprocated in Scotland to some degree, where an affinity with counterparts in Antrim was certainly felt. Savoured it was when the two teams met. On each occasion, the match was held at Celtic Park in Belfast, giving the Irish fans an opportunity to see their beloved teams. Glasgow Celtic shared the field with the Belfast outfit on no fewer than 15 occasions, the latter winning just twice. Naturally, huge crowds were lured, and gate receipts were often donated to charity. One of the key components of the friendship was Charles Patrick Tully, Ireland's original superstar. He was quite a character and a wonderful entertainer. It is thanks to him that we have Glenn Daly's immutable anthem, The Celtic Song. The bulk of the words to Daly's tone are written in a 1927 Belfast Celtic match programme, and Tully brought it with him to Glasgow. Tully also brought a wealth of trickery and talent. That talent was nurtured in his typically mischievous manner at St Kevin's School in Belfast. He regularly found himself in trouble for playing what was regarded as a foreign game, or soccer. Indeed, Tully had skippered the school Gaelic football team and also played hurling. But in spite of his prowess at Gaelic sports, It was always the English association football that he really wanted to play. As a teenager one day, Tully was asked to fill in for a local football team playing at Falls Park. He impressed so much that the legendary Jack Miles came to hear of his ability. Miles was a famous former athlete and then school teacher at Milford Street School. The institution was renowned for producing quality footballers and Miles arranged for Tully to be transferred to his institute 
as well as sorting him employment as a Belfast Celtic bullboy. Charlie now found himself in an environment whereby he could play soccer, but still enjoy Gaelic games. He won a junior medal in Gaelic football, but his soccer really started to shine. Belfast Celtic's coach, Willie MacDonald, had begun to take note of Tully's performances. MacDonald selected him to play against Glentoran in 1942, rendering Tully speechless for the first time in his life. Jack Vernon, a Belfast Celtic legend, had to, had to insert his shin guards, such was the shock. Equally shocking was the fact that the occasion marked the first time in Tully's career that he had ever worn shin guards. Usually he would just stuff old bits of newspaper down his socks. Nevertheless, he excelled on the pitch and was dubbed the schoolboy who was an outstanding discovery of the future by the local press. Belfast Celtic sent Tully out on loan to Ballyclare comrades in Cliftonville to gain experience. He built up his slender physique and, by the mid-1940s, had coveted a regular starting place in the first team. It was during this period that his magical playing style earned him the nickname of Cheeky Charlie. Tully's finest moment in Irish football probably took place on the 27th of April 1947, when he scored the winning goal against Glentoran to hand Belfast Celtic the Irish Cup. Change wouldn't be too far away at this point, as Sir Robert Kelly had spotted his talents in a friendly match against Glasgow Celtic a few years prior. Kelly famously said, Tully would do well here. Our support would appreciate him because he plays the Celtic way. The move finally came about after he had helped Belfast Celtic to win the Irish League title in 1948. By contrast, Glasgow Celtic had escaped relegation by the skin of their teeth. Nevertheless, the deal was sewn up very quickly. Upon joining the Glasgow Celts, Tully said, It took me three hours to decide on the Timoloys as opposed to the English glamour clubs. It had always been an ambition of mine to play for the great Scottish club. An admired magician on Irish shores, Tully would cement his place in Glasgow folklore by producing several magic moments throughout a wonderful 11 years at the club. In 1953, he took a corner kick against Falkirk at Brockville. He curled the ball straight into the net, only for the referee to disallow it. Charlie simply retook the corner and did the exact same again. This was not the first time that he had scored direct from a corner. In fact, he had already done so in an international game for Ireland against England. Cheeky Charlie was involved in the memorable Coronation Cup winning side and played in the 7-1 demolition of Rangers in the 1957 League Cup final. If Tully was loved back home, then he was adored in Glasgow. Before long, Tully cocktails and Tully ice cream scoops had arisen in Scottish cafes. Such was the stardom that he gained that he actually began writing a weekly column for the Evening Citizen newspaper called Tully Vision. Ironically, Tully scored against Belfast Celtic in the last meeting between the two Celtic clubs. That particular, fe that particular fixture featured a certain Jock Steen who was colossal at the heart of the defence. Aside from Tully and the friendly relations between the clubs, the most influential aspect in the relationship was actually the demise of Belfast Celtic. 
The club had shattered most Irish records by the outbreak of World War II and looked set to continue in similarly dominant fashion. However, a partitioned island and a changing society would play a key role in post-war football. Belfast Celtic faced Linfield at Windsor Park in December 1948 before a crowd of 27,000 people. Linfield largely represented the Loyalist community. Contests as these were fiery, and this occasion was no different. Linfield finished the match with eight players, Belfast Celtic with ten. However, it was the brutal actions of the supporters that would steal the headlines and change the future of Irish football. Belfast Celtic's Jimmy Jones had collided with Jimmy Bryson in the Linfield defence. Bryson sadly broke his ankle on impact. At half-time, the stadium announcer proclaimed that Bryson had snapped his leg, which inflamed the local support. The home side actually had another player taken to hospital with severe bruising too. This only made the crowd vent more poison. Amongst the mayhem, the Celts were awarded a penalty. Harry Walker scored, and the Nationalists looked set to take the points. The atmosphere turned so sour that many Belfast Celtic fans left early to avoid the predictable trouble. There was no segregation at the match, just a small band of RUC officers. With only four minutes left, Linfield equalised. Hatred and jubilation combined as the fans spilled onto the pitch. Order was quickly restored, and play petered out. Sadly, that was not the case at full time, as thousands of Linfield fans ran onto the park and attacked Belfast Celtics players. Jimmy Jones was isolated. Given that he had injured Bryson and was a Protestant, playing for what was termed the wrong side, he was made a target. Jones made way for the running track in a desperate attempt to get up to the terracing and shake off his attackers, but they dragged him back down the stairs and laid into him with dozens of kicks and punches. Linfield supporters jumped and stamped on Jones's leg repeatedly until one was broken. Even then, the crowd did not relent. All the while, the RUC failed to intervene. It was eventually Sean McCann, Jones's close friend and Ballymena goalkeeper, who came to his aid, but the damage had been done. Jones was rushed to Musgrave Park Hospital, where surgeons managed to save his leg although it was now an inch and a half shorter than the other. As a result of the attack, the Irish Football Association ordered Linfield to play two matches away from Windsor Park, which was their home ground. Belfast Celtic officials called an urgent meeting to discuss the repulsive attack. It is believed that an outcome was agreed at this stage, but was not publicly announced. After fulfilling the rest of the season's league commitments, the club embarked upon a tour of the USA. It was extremely successful and saw the Scottish national side, who were then British champions, famously defeated. However, soon after returning from their glamour excursion, it was announced that Belfast Celtic would withdraw from the Irish League. There was time for one last meeting with Glasgow Celtic in 1952 and a handful of friendly matches, the last being an emotional farewell against Coleraine after which the club disbanded. The significance of this from a Glasgow Celtic point of view is that the overwhelming majority of fans now pledge their sole allegiance to the Scottish-based club. 
Glasgow Celtic was already an established worldwide institution, having won exalted competitions such as the Empire Exhibition Cup and had distinguished tours of Europe and the USA themselves. Supporters' clubs were formed the length and breadth of Ireland, the first of which was St Peter's No. 1 CSC in Belfast in 1952. It was formerly a Belfast Celtic supporters' club. This transformation made travel to Scotland a touch more viable, and the CSC took part in trips across the water, often having to board cattle ships. As the civil rights movement grew and the troubles kicked off, the Irish-based contingent brought a hardened Republican mindset into an already politically-minded diaspora. The troubles were very emotive, and certainly would have stimulated the political nature of the Celtic support and their songbook regardless, but the fact that many fans travelling over were directly affected certainly shaped and intensified Celtic fans' political identity to a degree. In 2003, the Belfast Celtic Society was formed to resurrect the memory of the club. In 2010, they immortalised the name of Belfast Celtic by opening a museum in the shopping centre, which stands on the site of the old stadium. The museum brings the history to life, with a stack full of memorabilia and information. Whilst launching the museum, the Society also created a Belfast Celtic Trail. This is a walking tour that takes you on a journey to pivotal sites in the club's history, including the grave of Charlie Tully. It is largely intertwined with the Republican community's struggle for civil rights and freedom, along with the history of Celtic Football Club. The trail proves very popular with Celtic fans and is an excellent way to explore the connection between the two clubs. Belfast Celtic, Glasgow Celtic's best friend. <laughs>